Yo, this is Funky DL, aka the beat making rhyme slaying kid from the East, and right now you're listening to Artistry. Welcome to another episode of Artistry, where art meets industry. We are your hosts, Rochelle Etienne Robinson and Stan Substantial Robinson. Right, and welcome back to another episode of Artistry. Today's guest is regarded as one of the most legendary, hardest working man in hip hop and significant MCs. He's an MC, he's a producer for out of the UK. Please welcome to the show, Funky DL. Funky Welcome, hey, welcome. Hey, hey, nice to be here, man. Nice to be here. How you doing? We're Thank good, you. brother. We're good, oh my man. god, Definitely. we're so excited. Yeah, happy to have you here, man. You know, uh, forever got love for you, big bro. You know what I mean? Yeah, Stan to this day, I'm telling you, 2017, he was like, to this day, he's still, he's like, yo, man, when I was in London, oh my God, so my, many, my so was, many gems. Like, listen, fam, listen. You know what I mean, that's, that's, every time I start the story, it starts the same way. You know Absolutely. All the gems, all Absolutely. the gems. Absolutely. Appreciate you, bro. Definitely, definitely. So let's start from the beginning. What would you say is your earliest memory being introduced to the arts? And that's music, visual arts, whatever. Um, my earliest memory, um, I would say, I mean, I used to, I used to, uh, you know, watch movies like Breaking, um, you know, and that's kind of where the art form of, of rapping, you know, I remember seeing Ice T, and even for me, he wasn't the focus of that movie. It was Turbo and Ozone, you know, but yeah. seeing Ice-T in that movie and then going to school. And I'm like, you know, seven, eight years old. And other kids were, you know, breaking and popping and locking. And that really intrigued me. But I think by the time I was like nine years old, I started to write poetry. And I remember around Halloween, I wrote a poem about the witch. And um, my school teacher uh, read it and was so impressed that he took me out for lunch and bought me like a treat. And it was the first time I'd been rewarded for doing something creative in that way. Mm. Um, and then it just grew from there. By the time I was 10, 11, I started listening to uh, Biz Marquee and Karis One, but through my older brother. My older brother used to get like tapes from my older uncles. Um, and we weren't allowed to listen to some of the language on that music, but my brother yeah. used to play it. He's like a year older than me. And he used to play it, and I used to just hear all of this music. And again, the storytelling, Biz Marquee, uh, The Boogers, um, Harris One Love's Gonna Get You, just listening to, oh, it rhymes, and it's a story. It was just fascinating to, to me as yeah. a really young kid. And then by the time I got to like 11, 12, and it was like Jungle Brothers, De La Soul Tribe, I was like, oh, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Legends. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's you're... kind of how it got, it got started for me. Awesome. So you're from the London borough of Hackney in East London. Tell us about what it was like growing up there. So I, I wasn't, so I was born in a place called Plasto in East London. And I live, I've always lived in East London my whole life. But um, I moved to Hackney when I was about nine. Um, and I kind of claim it as where I grew up because even though I, I only moved there when I was nine, prior to that, I was always going to school in Hackney, even though I didn't mm. live in the borough. Um, uh, and then I moved to the borough. And the reason I moved there is because my mom 
kind of felt that Hagney was like really rich in terms of uh, multi-ethnicity, a lot of black people there. And my mum felt that where we, we lived at the time, which was a place called Cadden Town, didn't offer that richness, you know, and diversity. And so she wanted to, to raise her kids in a community that had, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people that were like us. Mm-hmm. And so Hackney was, um, I mean, it, it was considered a, a deprived borough, um, you know, uh, quite a poor borough. But, but I think culturally it was, it was um, really, really uh, kind of beaming, you know, to the seams of just this rich cultural um, kind of impact around the people that lived there. And they, there was a venue called um, the 291 Club uh, with, where we used to have a lot of Black-focused events. I remember my mom taking us to watch a, a theatre production called Black Heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was this kind of whole theatre thing of introducing really young people to who Nelson Mandela was, to who Pele, the soccer player, was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so Hackney was just, it's like a really poor and deprived borough, but was really culturally rich for black people. Wow. So before your 20th birthday, you received a five album deal with no management, right? Secured a five album record and publishing deal with Almo Sounds. And um, is it Rondor? Rondor Music? Rondor, Rondor Music, yeah. Yeah, tell us about that experience. How did that even come about? Because a five album deal for just coming out is impressive in itself. It's not very common. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was like, for me, I was always pursuing opportunities as a teenager. Um, and how that happened was I had been offered two uh, kind of like record deals, small record deals, production deals, whatever you want to call them. But it just, the terms wasn't good. And I, you know, as a young person, Although I wasn't clued up on the business side, I just it didn't feel right. The first deal was like a two-year deal, uh, no release commitment, no money, uh, but signed exclusively. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. Mm-hmm. The second deal I got offered was like, you know, exclusive deal. We release your album, no money. But if you do a second album with us, you get like two grand. And again, it was like, yeah, no, mm-hmm. I'm not. And then, you know, but what actually happened was I used to... Um, I was someone who was a bit of a busybody, you know? And so I would phone record companies, I would turn up in places. So I remember going to Jive Records in uh, Northwest London. And obviously Jive is a huge label, you know, from everyone, from Keith Murray to A Tribe Called Quest, Aaliyah, R. Kelly, you know, Will Smith and uh, NSYNC and, you know, the list goes on. Um, so I turned up there one day and asked to speak, speak to the um, A&R guy. Um, and I knew his name, and the receptionist called him down, and he just said to me, uh, have you got a meeting with me or something? And I said, no. And he was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting was that, you know, he he had heard of me through a couple of friends. He he had some uh, some friends that I, was, I, I, I got acquainted with, you know, some older guys who were in the business, and I think he had heard of me. But he was still kind of shocked about me turning up at the label. Anyway, fast forward, he then went to work for um, a record label called PWL, which was run by or owned by a a famous uh, businessman called Pete Waterman. Pete Waterman is a guy who started the whole pop idol and X X Factor 
franchise, you know, right. Simon Carroll. And then this A&R guy then went to work for Almo Sounds and, and mm-hmm. Publishing. Now, what's interesting is Almo Sounds is actually a record label that was started by the jazz musician Herb Alpert. Oh. Um, so, and, he, and you know, it's funny because he's one of the richest musicians that there is <laughs> on this earth, a jazz musician. But Herb, Herb Alpert and his business partner, Jerry Moss, took the first two letters from their names, um, their surnames, so Alpa, A-L, and Moss, M-O, and created mm-hmm. Almo. And then they did the same with their daughter's names. I think, I don't know what their daughter's names are, but it was R-O-N for one and D-O-R for the other, and they started Rondo Publishing. Mm-hmm. And so I was still making demos, and that A&R guy from Jive and PWL had heard some stuff of mine and got in contact with me, and then initially offered me like a single deal and, and gave me some studio time in the studios. And what I came out with was so impressive for him that he was like, we've got to sign this guy. Wow. So, um, so yeah, that's how I ended up getting the, the, the five album uh, recording and publishing deal. That's crazy. So actually it was really beneficial to, to just turn up a jive record. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you think someone could do that today? You know, where, I mean, it's probably not even necessary. Like, I mean, I know... Um, artists coming up now it's not even necessary to have a record deal you can do essentially most anything on your own if you have the resources of course yeah i mean it's interesting interesting question you've asked when you say you know is that something worth considering doing today and i would say yes because i think that there's a level of tenacity that is missing from young Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. trying to get into business there's almost this you know kind of expectation that things should just happen Right. You know, I post my music online. I have an Instagram account. I think I sound great. Things should just happen. Right. Whereas, you know, um, the time I was coming up, it was like, I got to make things happen. Mm-hmm. I got to yeah. be in places. I got to connect with people, whether they like it or not. Right. You know, yeah. um, and of course, you try to be respectful and not to be too intrusive. Mm-hmm. But you, you have to understand this is a competition. Right. And that there are a thousand other kids trying to get what I'm trying to get. What am I doing that they're not doing? And I think that's what, um, you know, even youngsters and people trying to get in the biz today should be considering and not just following the formula of let me do what everyone else is doing. Right. Yeah. One one thing I noticed, um, you know, I've been uh, tr- throwing my hat in the, you know, in the circle as a uh, tastemaker. Um, and so this playlist that I manage, this soulful hip hop playlist, um, you know, I get submissions like daily for it. And and one of the things when I listen to it, right, like I feel like what you're talking about, the other benefit to that process and just and not so much just showing up at labels, but just also um, when you find some industry professionals being able to kind of interact, get feedback um, and maybe not A&Rs, just other people who do it professionally. Because um, one of the things I notice is missing when I hear the stuff is uh, one would use the term raw, right? Like a lot of the stuff is raw, but a lot of it just, like I don't want to throw the word good out there, but it's just not, it's not put together well. Like whether I like it or not, it's just like sonically it's not put together well. It seems like, I mean, we know that a lot of people are making this in their home studios, um, but there's a lot of people making this stuff in their home studios and it doesn't sound like that. Where it's a lot of people where, yo, it's clear 
that like you probably don't know what you're doing, at least on the sonic side of things um, outside of just being a quality rapper, singer or whatever. And so um, so I feel like there's a lot of benefits that kind of come with rubbing elbows with people who do it, do it. You know what I mean? Like uh, like, you know, versus you just waking up one day and be like, I want to rap and I'm going to buy this stuff and now I can do the whole thing myself without really interacting with anyone who has any experience in any part of this. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I'm, yeah, but anyway, I'm I mean, there's, there's a level of finesse to, to everything, you know? Yeah. Um, and to be able to get to that place, you've got to be able to uh, gain experience and you gain experience from number one people who have been there and done it mm -hmm. and can show you the ropes or teach you a thing or two. You know, being able to rap is not, the prerequisite for being successful. You put on the theme music to the Fresh Bits of Belair and everybody can rap. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? But, it, but there is, there's an importance in, in understanding that you've got to grow and you've got to try to network and, and meet people that can help you to advance. I mean, the whole situation with me getting the deal was mm -hmm. actually me calling up um, Jive Records on the weekend not knowing that they calls though no one works on the weekend, so they calls go through to battery studios mm -hmm. and then the receptionist answers and he says, Oh, you're 14, oh you rap. Uh come down to the studio. Which he could have just said, Listen, I couldn't I can't help you. Right. Is but he tells me to come down. Then he introduces me to his his friend who works at a, a record store. And I go to the record store and that guy's a producer as well. And then mm -hmm. he ends up working for Jive and then introducing me to the guy who ultimately signed me later. So it right. all started from a telephone call to Jive Records where I was 14 years old and I was calling them just to say, hey, um, I rap and I want to know more about the music industry. Is there anything yeah. you can tell me? Right. You know? Yeah. Wow. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how does you being um, located where you are, like how that plays into it. And like the combination of being in London and the year that it was, right? Like, because in my mind, I'm sure there were people that rap, but probably not to the degree, like not to the level like we're at now, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, because I feel like in, in a lot of cases, most people are going to be like, yeah, come through. Like, <laughs> I got hit up by this guy on my DM. Come on <laughs> through, bro. <laughs> you know, swing by. <laughs> you know what I mean? So how how much of a role do you think uh, the uh, the time mixed with uh, you know uh, where you were played in um, in all of that? Um, I think yeah, I think it, the, there was definitely um, you know now feels like it's a free for all. And yeah. Everyone is any everyone can do anything, and you know it's and everyone does everything. For it. Yeah, and back mm -hmm. but back then it was like you know it wasn't easy to find someone who was going to try and pursue this and have a certain level of talent and ability right. and skill and commitment and focus and dedication. Everyone says they have those things, sure. but that wasn't really evident at that time. You know, there was, it, there wasn't as much transparency to be able to see what's out there. Mm -hmm. So you had to make more of an effort to right. be seen and to be heard, right. you know? Um, so I think at that time it was, it was, it was tougher but then easier to be seen once you punch through, you know? Right. Um, right. Wow. So, so yeah, it was, it was a different time. And I, I mean, I think also part of it comes down to 
the individual, meaning that when I, when I called Jive, I was just fortunate to get someone on the other end of the phone who was benevolent enough to say that this 14-year-old kid let me invite them down. Right. You know, I could have easily got someone on the other end of the phone that said, uh, I'm really busy today. Like, you know, you phoned the wrong, you've come through to the wrong place, call back between Monday to Friday when they answer right. the phones at Chai. Right. But it just didn't go that way. So call it divine intervention or mm-hmm. whatever. It's like, um, it's a, it was a blessing for me, you know. Yeah. yeah. Shortly after signing, uh, you would go on to win a MOBO Award, Music of Black Origin Award for Best Hip Hop Act. What was that experience like? It was incredible in the sense that, um, I mean, it was a new award. It only it only started in 96. So it had only, the, the Best Hip Hop Act had only been won previously uh, the, the year before by a, 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 a rapper called Black Twang. So in 97, when I was nominated, it felt great. Um, but what what for me stuck out was just being able to go to the uh, the ceremony and to be standing in a room where you're looking at Mary J. Blige and Teddy Riley and Missy Elliott and Jamiroquai. And never before in my life had I been in the presence of people of that stature right. um, right. in one place. So that was uh, a very, very memorable um, occasion. I think with the nomination in 98 and the nomination in 99, what that did was that was a real confidence boost for me mm-hmm. because, because what it showed was that Funky DL was so consistent and, and my work rate was so high that for three years in a row, with all the rappers that were emerging, mm-hmm. I got into this category of five, you know? Right. Um, and it, and it, I don't know if that... Sometimes I felt like, is it a reflection of the poor work ethic of a lot of the other people on the UKC? Yeah. Or was it that I was this standout guy that they just right. had to keep putting my name back in the hat, you know? Because um, three years is a long time as an yes. artist, you know? Um, for you to keep coming back and being nominated for the same sure. award. And so right. for me, that was a real confidence booster that, that I was worthy um, and exceptional um, among my peers. Wow. So, you know, everyone knows you as an MC, but um, but, you know, one of the things uh, I learned some years ago um, is that, you know, you're an equally uh, talented producer. Um, and I didn't realize uh, back then I didn't realize you were producing most of your own work. So, you know, uh, I always love to ask producers this because I get asked all the time. So what are your uh, what are the weapons of choice? Like, what do you prefer to produce with? Okay, um, it's interesting you say that because actually I believe most of my audience revere me greater as a producer than as, yeah. as, as an MC. I'm um, thinking of, it's so, you know, just to clarify, my introduction uh, to you, like a lot of people's introduction uh, uh, to me was through uh, Nujabes, right? Yeah, so, that's right, that's so right. yeah, so when I think if, like he's the gateway for certain people. Like maybe initially they don't know. I mean, I know you're you're killing it as a producer. You know what I mean? But um, but I think when people first show up, if they if they get to you that way, they don't necessarily know DL the producer. You know? What yeah, I mean? yeah. You're you're right there. Um, but I think I think I believe it to be the way that it that I said it, and because of your, before I met Nujibes, I was doing so much. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah I, in in '99, and and I I think. 
my, my music first started getting airplay, at least in the UK, in 95. And so that's a good four years, you know. Right, I right. Met and released my first album in 97, the second one in 98, the third one in right. 99. So by the right. time I met Nujibes, I'd already acquired a fan base. Yeah, you, you already mean? it. But mm-hmm. to answer your question um, about uh, uh, equipment and, and tools of choice, so I, I bought myself an Akai MPC 2000 in 97. Mm. Um, and that was pretty much, every, you know, I did everything on that. Um, and I rocked with that for years. I mean, I think I got up to around 2008 before I stopped really using the um, MPC in the way I was using it. Because I was programming in there, I was arranging in there. Um, but then I started to get more into arranging music in computers and and just... Um, trying to just get the beats looped in the MPC. I mean, I even got to a point where I stopped saving uh, the work I was doing in the MPC because the technology had changed and I was using these zip drives and they were having problems with the drive yeah. and whatnot. So I had to change. Um, and then fast forward to now, I have an MPC Renaissance. I still have the 2000, they both work. But I don't really use yeah. either of them. I don't really use either of them. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of putting things into Cubase, you know, I'm putting mm-hmm. wave audio, into Cubase and I'm lining things up visually and audibly um, and just playing around. I mean, I might use the MPC if I want to loop something at a specific tempo and just mm-hmm. get it locked in, but I'm not saving anything in there. But I'm just yeah. more using, you know, the, the digital audio workstation as in Cubase to really do the bulk of the work. And the MPC might be, you know, 5% of what, what's used to, to bring a track to life. Right, right. Yeah, we, I mean, like Shell was just asking uh, for, for our listeners. Of course, y'all can't see what we can see, but there's an MPC in a zip drive uh, to his uh, to oh, his yeah. left. You know, yeah, that's the MPC two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. classic joint. But um, yeah, and I, you know, I, I I'm glad that I got a lot of the music I did on the MPC. You know, I made more beats than I could ever rhyme on. And that's yeah. what really got me into releasing that instrumental albums and, and yeah. building a whole catalog through that because I realized I got all of this work and it, it does me no good to sit here, um, you know, stored in these drives and not be out there in the in the marketplace, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it served me well for a long time. Yeah, man, you're such a prolific producer. You know what I mean? Like, um, it's just uh, amazing to watch. Um, Who's your favorite, uh, like, double threat uh, MC producer? I think that would always have to be Q-Tip. Mm. Yeah. Uh, because I yeah. think Q-Tip, his production skills are just phenomenal. You know, mm-hmm. joints like One Love for Nas, Crooklyn, mm-hmm. yeah. um, the Get Down remix, Craig Max Get Down remix. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just phenomenal productions. Um, Drink Away the Pain, Mob Deep, Give Up the Goods, Temperatures Rising. Right. You know, but then as an MC, Q-Tip can hold his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hold his own, you know, he's very distinctive and very stylish and, you know, um, very unique and he's got bars and he's got swag and flair. And so my double threat favor is he's got to be Q-Tip. Yeah. Good awesome. answer, good answer. Right. <laughs> we the black delegation agree with that. <laughs> we agree. Is that dude. Oh, goodness. You know, in addition to all of the accolades, you know, you are also um, run your own label, Washington Classics. Yeah. How did you come up with that name? 
So uh, I knew I wanted to have a start a small record label um, and have my own imprint. Um, and thinking of a name was just simply, I said, I, I, firstly, the word classic is something I always wanted to be synonymous with me. So my first album was called Classic was the day. There's a joint on there called Classic Moves. I just love that word, you know. Um, and so I, I, I thought it should be something classics. And then I was thinking maybe a geographic place. And so the first thing that came to mind was London classics, but then I knew there was a London records, which was quite famous mm-hmm. as a label. So I said, no, that won't work. And the second thing I thought of was Washington. And then as soon as I said the two words, they had a ring to it. It just worked mm-hmm. for me. So I had no affiliation with Washington. I was not related to Denzel Washington. <laughs> <laughs> but I just loved the sound of Washington classics. And I ran with yeah. that and it's held up ever since. Yeah, no, it sounds official. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like the moment I heard it, you know, I was just like, I, it's funny. It sounded so good that the moment I heard it, I never bothered the question, why Washington? I was just like, I mean, it seems legit. Let's go with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So you began, um, of course, in your home, your home country of the UK, but you have been able to direct your music internationally. Um, yeah. You've traveled most of um, throughout Europe, Australia, um, Israel, Japan, how did you go about reaching out to those markets? Well, I'm trying to condense this answer. So Australia was a competition. That was the first place I ever went outside of the United Kingdom as a professional. So I had traveled mm-hmm. to Jamaica and the US as a young kid. Um, but Australia came as a result of a competition on Kiss FM out here where I won, at first I won one competition, which was to get a thousand copies of your record cut. And then they had run that competition several times. And so they put a super competition with all the winners and I won that. And that was a trip to Australia. Nice. Um, But, you know, as a practicing artist and releasing my first album in 97, things just started rolling, bookings were coming in. So Israel was a surprise one. I did a tour out there sponsored by Pringles. and I don't even know if I've ever eaten a Pringle again because there was so there was so much Pringles on that tour. But it was it was really beautiful because I got to go to um, uh, I got to go to uh, where is it Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and and go to uh, the 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 resting place of Jesus when he was died when he died. Sorry. And when they rolled the stone away, you know, um, and it was very, very sacred and very special. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the best Chinese food I ever had was in Israel. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, and it just started to build from there and started to be able to, to get opportunities. I mean, Japan was New Jabez inviting me the first time just to write and record. And then coming back a second time to do writing and recording, but a show in Club Harlem. And then a record label was waiting for me at that show and licensing deals then emerged and mm-hmm. started getting bookings, bookings in the latter years from Europe, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Spain. Um, mm-hmm. So I've just been really fortunate to be able to travel, um, even China. You know, I've been to China and performed twice, once in um, Shanghai. And then the second time was actually in 2017 in Wuhan. 
You know, I'd never heard of Wuhan. Wow. I never heard of Wuhan. And then I got to go to Wuhan. And then a few years later, everyone knows of Wuhan. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, good thing you went when you did. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, don't blame me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's crazy. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, remix, remixing and, um, and your production. You have worked with some notable artists. You have re- remixed records for Missy Elliott, Keith Sweat, Adina Howard, Amy Winehouse, um, provided contributions um, and then to acts like The Roots, Eminem, Destiny's Child. Tell us about those experiences and what st- what which artist or what experience stood out to you most? Um, well, with the remixes, I never ever got to work with Adina Howard or Q Sweat or Missy in, in the sense where I was never in the studio with them. I was just commissioned as a producer to take yeah. their gotcha. and, 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 and work with it. But I met Missy um, at the mobile. She handed me my mobile award, actually, with Chuck wow. D. Um, wow. Shout out to Chuck. Yeah, and, um, yeah, shout out to Chuck D. And I got to uh, meet Missy and, and just have a, a quick conversation after security checked me out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> clear. But, um, clear. But yeah, but like I supported Destiny's Child. That was amazing because Destiny's Child had just came out with No, No, No. Um, you know, they were so young. There was no big, massive Beyonce as the kind of main figure of the group. Right. And I remember put, uh, doing a sound check at the Hippodrome, which was a massive venue in London. Leicester Square and they came in and someone put out four stools for them and these four really young girls were, were just sat on these on these stools watching us do our sound check and when we came off the stage they were like hey that was amazing and we went over and shook hands with them again I didn't know which one was which you know right, right. but um but yeah that was that was um a really cool experience and then actually when we did the show the actual performance um, we got just as, as good of a reception, my DJ and, and some fellow rappers, as Destiny's Child did. Um, Nas is another one that I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting twice um, and, and being in a freestyle cipher with him uh, on Choice of Femme in London. Um, and also Pete Rock. I, I did a session with uh, myself, Pete Rock, and another UK rapper called Dynamite MC, uh, where, where I kiss a femme doing like a freestyle session and the UK soul band, The Influence, come in with all live instruments and they were playing while Pete Rock, myself and Dynamite MC were rapping. So I've been really fortunate to meet, you know, uh, a lot of artists, even in Japan, hung out with uh, the Black Eyed Peas, you know, and mm-hmm. joked around with Will I Am, yeah. um, you know, up on J-Wave Radio, we were all there at the same time. And so, yeah, I've been able to cross paths with a lot of uh, fantastic um, artists, you know. I'm um, so grateful for those experiences. That's awesome. hmm Obviously, whenever we're talking or like someone hits us up, you know, at some point in time, working with Jen comes up and uh, what that experience was like. What was your overall experience like um, working with him in particular and what made that experience so unique? I think it was the cultural difference fundamentally. Like mm-hmm. for me, having never been to Japan or not knowing much about Japan, for him to invite me and then introduce me to Japanese culture um, Mm -hmm. was such a gift. It was a huge gift um, because I got to learn so much about about Japan. And and I think in working with Jun, that cultural difference created um, a sense of uh, 
humor between yeah. us that yeah. that was amazing, you know. So it was really interesting to see with John that when I would just say certain things, he would not know what, what I was talking about, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to um, break it down to him. But then also he would explain things to me in a way that I would learn about how Japanese perceive language and how to better yeah. communicate with Japanese. Mm-hmm. So an example would be, I remember saying to uh, Jun, um, he said something to me and I said to him, what are you, nuts? And <laughs> he, said, he said, what does nuts mean? <laughs> and I said, nuts, nuts means crazy. And he said, oh, DL, in Japan, nuts means nuts. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but, not, but then he, you know, he was the one who said to me that, you know, in Japan, there's certain words when you're speaking to a Japanese person in English that if you use those words, although you may think a Japanese person would understand, they just won't. And so he said, for example, if I say, oh, I found something very hard, it would literally mean hard, you know, right, whereas right. if you say I found something difficult, Right. Uh, a Japanese person who speaks English would would better understand that, right. you know. Um, and, it, and it's interesting because even I was saying to a, a colleague of mine, a friend who, you know, when you, you have a kind of signature on your email, mm-hmm. uh, at the bottom you might have your contact details or your, your social media. And um, he put on his, on the bottom of his um, email signature, to hear my music, click here. And actually, from my experience with Jun and just looking at language, I said to him, you should change that and say to listen to my music. Because I yeah. think the word listen is more universally known, yes. yeah. uh, you know, from all around the world than the mm-hmm. word hear, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so it was little things like that, like in working with Jun, that you learn about the, the nuances of language. And, um, yeah. and again, the, the humor that came from it. You know, when Jun would say to me, uh, you know, I'd be maybe tired after doing a show or some studio sessions, and he'd say, "Oh, you sleepy, DL?" And I say, "No, I'm funky, DL." You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a really fun-filled relationship. Right. You know? that was, that, that was, that's a pretty good dad joke, right there. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Dude, one of the funniest things. Um, it's funny, man, when you talk about the humor part, like. Uh, you know, kicking it with him and kicking it with uh, uh, Naoto as well, uh, Mona Rissick, uh, yeah. later known as Dextreme. Um, yo, man, it's just so, like, I enjoy not working, like, so much more, like, because because of the laughs, right? Like, uh, one of the things that I remember was when um, uh, the movie Memento, uh, when it came out. Yeah. And uh, Janet saw the movie... Uh, and so did I. And this was right before I came out there. And uh, and clearly he loved the uh, movie because anytime he could bring it up, he would. So, like, we'd be talking about something. And he'd ask me if I remembered uh, something we did earlier that week. And if I didn't, anytime I couldn't remember anything, he was oh, you got memento. Like, <laughs> <laughs> for a month straight, bro, that was the joke. Like the whole, that whole trip in 2001 was you got memento. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, yeah, man, just good times, dude. Good times. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I'm sure you've been there, Stan, but he, mm-hmm. when he introduced me to Monsoon Cafe, I was in. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, the, you know, the food there for me was just like, what is this? Can we go again? I'm asking right. can we come here again while we're sitting at the table? You know? Yeah, yeah. Monsoon <laughs> Cafe and uh, Bowery Kitchen was good too, man. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, again, introducing me to the, the cultural, you know, the, the food and, um, and just even seeing how the Japanese um, consume music and the way that yeah. they enjoy it and express themselves through it. It was really interesting to walk through Tokyo, Shibuya, and see kids breaking and popping and locking in car parks outside 7-Elevens, um, right. 7-11s when maybe they, they had a performance later that night. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, hip hop lives here. Yeah. When I'm in London, I don't see kids popping and locking and breaking with their boombox outside in car right. parks. It's just, it's not visible, you know? Yeah. Right. So yeah. to be able to have access to that and see how hip hop culture lives in Japan, again, was um, invaluable. Yeah, man. Yeah, so just to switch gears real quick, one of the things that I've found extremely intriguing about you is um, the fact that you actually studied law, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, and it's not like this was, you know, young DL, like, yeah, let me, before the getting into these deals real quick, you know, let me, let me go ahead and study law. But this is something that came uh, much later, like 2014, right? And so what uh, what inspired you to make that move? couple of things. Number one, the downturn in, in the music industry um, was, it was bad. You know, when we, when we came, uh, when we went through the 2008 global kind of world recession, mm-hmm. our money was so scarce for music for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I used to make most of my income from vinyl and CD sales. And by that time, all the HMVs were out of here and all the Virgin Megastores were out of here, at least in the UK and the US. And you know, so distributors were then closing down and, and it just wasn't worthwhile financially to press records. At the same time, the streaming uh, industry hadn't taken off into the way that it is now. So what we had yeah. was this middle phase of downloads. Yeah. And people were figuring out how to download things for nothing. Right. Um, so there was this kind of drought financially. And it was like, oh, if this is how this music business is looking, I need to do something else. And only having my secondary or high school education, I wasn't then fit enough to be able to, if I needed to go and work, work at something where I could get paid a decent wage, mm-hmm. you know, only having a high school education. So for me, it was like, I got to do something. And what was interesting was that I spoke to a friend of mine in, in New York and she said to me, dear, I've always found you to be quite an objective person have you ever thought about doing something like um, uh, mediating? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a subsequent conversation with a friend in London, and he just said to me, you should study law. Mm-hmm. And then I, I thought about it for a while, and then I decided that's what I'm going to do. And I, uh, I had never been to university before. I didn't even know the process of how you enroll, how you get the student finance, because I couldn't afford the fees. Um, but I figured it all out. Um, and enrolled in 2011, um, and I absolutely loved the experience of learning 12 modules of law. In the first year, I did constitutional law, contract law, criminal law, and I learned the English legal system and skills, which is all about the court system. Mm -hmm. Second year, I did international law, um, European Union law, tort law, which is all about negligence, and land law. And then in my final year, I studied company law, the law of evidence, family law and equity and trusts. And those 12 modules across three years gave me the most valuable insight about this world that we're in and the cogwheels that turn it. 
you know, graduating in 2014, um, it was a beautiful, it was one of the most difficult things I had to do because I was drowning in it. It was so much to take in, but um, it was one of the most difficult things I had to do, but one of the proudest things that I've accomplished. And, um, And even just along that journey, being part of the debate team and Never losing the debate, you know, the undisputed wow. champion at the time I was there. Of course and, you are. <laughs> yeah, but, and right. people would say to me, you know, like, how are you so good? Who trained you? And it's like, they don't know that I'm a performer and I'm a rapper. Right. You know, right. I never broadcast that I was a lyricist or an MC. Yeah. And so they're thinking, how does he do this? But it's like, oh, I, I stand in front of people and speak for mm-hmm. a living. Right. So, um, so, yeah, you know, to be able to take those skills, actually, which are transferable, you know, as a rapper, it's mm-hmm. the ability to speak and to paint a picture with words and to uh, have a great memory, you know. Right. And then again, you're going as, as a lawyer, you're doing the same thing. You need to recite cases and recite statute and, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then also paint your picture with words and be persuasive and be convincing. And so these are transferable, intertransferable skills. Right. And so, um, yeah, it, it just came out that I, I, I did that because I, I was skeptical about the future but kept pushing music so much mm-hmm. so that I pushed past the whole, you know, not making much money. The download thing kind of phased out and it went into streaming and I, and I built from there. So right. I've never had to rely on that law degree, um, right. but I have it nonetheless. And I'm so, right. so grateful for, for having yeah. And I'm sh- go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and you already had the foresight because from, you know, earlier you spoke about when you were a teenager reviewing these contracts yes, that you yes, were looking yeah, yeah that you were observing and reading over and you knew like what was not good. Whereas a young person, the average young person would have just been like, Ooh, you giving me a deal. Where do I sign? You know, where you had, you know, you, you looked, you observed, you analyzed. And so the, the, the writing was already on the wall. It was just, you know, part of your path. I think it all, it's all interconnected because here's the interesting thing about me. Um, English, the subject of English wasn't really a subject I really enjoyed that much, but it was a subject I was very good at. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, when I first started high school, the very first piece of work that my English teacher gave me is a comprehension task. You read something and write about it. I wrote about it in a rhyme form and then asked my English teacher if I could um, perform it to the class, which she said yes, and I did and everyone cheered, and then she took me up to the music department and introduced me to the teachers there and said, this kid really has something. But mm-hmm. coming back to English, like, it was something that I always had good command of the language and words, and it was just, you know, I told you guys I wrote this poem when I was nine, and my teacher was impressed by the language and the use of rhyme. And mm-hmm. so um, words have always fascinated me. And so um, when I see things like contracts or you put a piece of paper in front of me, and it, I get really forensic with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even on the flip side of that, people have watched me write, you know, whether I write a letter or I'm writing a story or I'm writing an email. And I, I could be sitting in front of a blank piece of paper from the moment I write the first line, it's in no time that that page is filled, is filled with words. Right. It's right. just words are something that for me um, have just really been a, a, a power tool in my life. And so the command of language um, and to understand language. And and sometimes, uh, you know, you see people and the way that they use language and and they don't even understand the power of of how one word can change a whole Mm -hmm. sentence. And I'll give you an example of that. 
and forgive me for this. I, I don't mean no. to uh, to, um, <laughs> to to say these words, but it's just something I saw. Um, so I saw this young girl, maybe about 17, 18 year old, years old outside where I live, arguing with a woman up on the third floor. And they were really bad language and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the young girl was accusing the woman up on the third floor of being a prostitute and all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> and then the young girl said something which I just thought was the strangest thing I had ever heard. She said to the woman up on the third floor, at least my dad hasn't raped me yet. Oh. Wow. And I just thought, oh. when you when you put the word yet on the end yeah. of that, right. that sentence, yeah. wow. <laughs> it changes that sentence context completely. Yeah. You know, and so like language, that's the expectation. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that's wow. well, I, you know, I, I guess she meant to say at least my dad hasn't raped me. Rate me, right? right. You know. Right. But, but just by adding that yeah. one word, it just has a whole new meaning. And that's right. something I've always kind of with language, I've always kind of like picked up on the smallest things mm-hmm. when it comes to language. And so that's kind of been, like I said, a, a real power tool and a resource for me. Wow. Wow. Mm. Got the power of words. Yeah, seriously. Sorry, was that a bit strong? No, wow. no. I mean- <laughs> oh, 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 we've had some heavy conversations on the show. You know what I mean? Because that's what it's here for. 2020 got us ready for everything, man. You know, we're, it's been a year, bro. Like, it's been a year. Well, your journey has taken you um, through, you know, travel, through release of projects, through law degrees, um, 18 studio albums to date. Um, in 2019, you released Def, um, which is their most recent release. How was that project different from other projects? Oh, so I'm going to answer that question. But first, I've released an album since Death. Okay. So, I, and I have 19 released studio albums because I released mm. an album called Life yeah. After Denison in 2019. Yeah. Great record. So, um, thank you. So, Death, um, but I'll tell you how Death is different because Death is the first time I ever made an album without using any samples. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, all the music on Death is played by musicians. Right. Um, you know, so when I say not using samples, I mean, like the drums were one shots. Those are samples, some of them, you know, but in terms of melodically, there mm-hmm. are no yeah. breaks. There are no right. sampled bass lines. The basses are all played. Keys, mm-hmm. guitars, electric, acoustic, everything mm-hmm. is, is played live. Mm-hmm. But they, and they, but the funny thing is they are interpolations of samples, but then right. we've been able to then enhance on them. So that's wow. how Death stands out from every other album. Every other album I've done has got breaks all over it. Yeah. But Death was the first one where I said no samples whatsoever. Wow. Dope, man. Dope. So 2020 has been an interesting year, to say <laughs> the least. Um, you know, and by the time everyone hears this, we will be closing out the year. By the way, happy Kwanzaa. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I guess for you, uh, what has, you know, what has been some of the toughest things to kind of navigate uh, during this climate, you know, from the uh, from the coronavirus to the, um, the the protests that we see happening around the world um, with uh, police brutality? Um, like so, like, how has 2020 been to you and what have you taken from it that is kind of better, uh, better prepared you for whatever your next steps are? 
I think actually to answer that question, 2020 for me, although we've had coronavirus and we, although we've had this kind of tipping point of, um, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement, there's something else that happened in 2020 for me that I had never experienced before, which is I became employed for the first time in my life. Mm. I had an employer. So I, I started teaching uh, a job uh, in January, January 6th of this year. Um, and I was initially supposed to go into this uh, academy, this music academy, and do kind of master classes and consultancy and one-to-one tutorials. But what ended up happening was that um, there was some issues uh, with a specific pathway um, and they put me on a specific pathway and I kind of was just kind of stuck in the corner. Um, and because I'm quite proficient and quite um, you know, diligent, then a lot of the workload fell on my shoulders and I found that I was working, teaching like you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then spending Friday, Saturday, and Sunday preparing the content for the next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right. And nothing right. was happening with my music. And so I did that for five months. Um, and, um, you know, then I, in June, I, um, I just said enough is enough. I need to get back to my music because they had hunted me. So it was never, I, I wasn't in a position where I needed a job, but they right. kind of stumbled upon me and thought that, you know, I have really something great to offer the students. Sure. And so that was a real big milestone in my life because I'm 42 and after 42 years, I'm getting my first job ever. Yeah, so that that was interesting, and, and to also see the inner workings of an organization as an employer, um, or sorry, as them being an employer, me being an employee, but to see how that whole framework and infrastructure works, you know, and how you're treated and how you're valued and the bureaucracy that can be involved in all of that, um, it was really eye-opening because I've only ever heard about from friends the things that they had gone through in their employment, but had never experienced it. Right. Um, you know, and even there were times where, you know, in previous years I'd be maybe a bit jealous of other friends because when people say, oh, my workplace is having a Christmas party, it was like, mm. the DL's going to throw his own Washington Classics Christmas party. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, there was, you know. So that for me was actually one of the, the, the biggest challenges for this year. Um, coronavirus um, exacerbated it in the sense that we, we had then had to teach online. And, and one of the things I learned from teaching online from that experience is that people, a lot of people say they prefer working from home mm -hmm. um, because they don't have to commute and it's more comfortable and so on and so forth. The one downside I learned from teaching online is that when, when you get stressed or something makes you frustrated or something makes you disgruntled, that energy is in your home. Yes. Right. Whereas before, that energy was in a building I could walk away from. Mm, yeah. Right. Wow, that's powerful. So, um, hmm. so yeah, that, that's one of the things. I think with corona, it's been difficult for all of us. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen any of my family members since around January, February. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a minute. And as for the, the BLM, I mean, you know, I, I am as perplexed and upset with the events that have been happening not only in America, but just around the world with black people. And, um, but it's one of those things where even just the thought of it is difficult to contend with because there's so much 
yeah. in terms of conversation. There's so much in terms of consideration. Someone said to me the other day, you know, England, they said something along the lines of England is not as racist as America. And I said, I'm not here to say whether it is or it isn't. But the one thing I know is that the structure of the countries are very different. Mm -hmm. So racism will then come out in different ways. So as you guys mentioned in a, in, a, in a conversation before we started recording, that the fact that the United States is governed state by state mm -hmm. and that there are different rules, it's more difficult to keep tabs and control how people are treated on a whole, number right. one. So that's number one. Number two... You know, the Second Amendment speaks of um, the right to bear arms. We don't have that out in America. And so fatalities from police, from black people happen, but they, they don't happen in the same way, and maybe not as much. And then demographically, you guys are about 13, 14% of the population in America, whereas black people in the UK are 3% of the right. population. And so it's very hard to compare these two countries um, in the same way. You know, and, and, and say that one is more this than the other because the demographics and a lot of the other considerations are not equal. Right. You know? um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very perplexing and, um, to see, but I'm, but I'm also proud to see us as black people um, being willing, as we always have been. This is not new. We're willing to stand up for who we are and celebrate who we are. You know, as a black person, I have to ask myself the question, if I was to be reincarnated, would I, would I avoid coming back as black? Hell no. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, I love being black. I love what it means to be black, you know? Mm. Um, and so I, I celebrate that in who we are. And I think that we always um, have to and should and need to stand up for our rights as not only just, you know, to almost say to stand up as a human being is almost like saying, no, people don't know we're humans. And I know that some people don't treat yeah. us like humans. Right. But it's like we are so incredible, as is every other race in their own way. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I was having a conversation with a relative of mine. He was saying black people are superior to, um, to every other race. And I'm like, I don't believe in that statement. I think that black people are superior to every other race in some areas. And then, and then other races are superior to us in some areas. And that, that's what creates the equilibrium of human mm -hmm. beings. And so, you know. Boy, white people, you win when it comes to managing the coal. You win. You got that. <laughs> you, are, you are masters of cold weather. <laughs> but precisely, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, yeah, sure. um, you know, different races are superior at different things. Mm -hmm. right. um, so I don't, I don't have this belief that there's one race that is just the superior race because then yeah. I'm going to end up being like Hitler. Right. You know? And I think yeah. it's that kind of thinking that got us in this mess in the first place. Mm -hmm. right. You know, this whole that we as a race are just supremely better than everybody else. So if we can, if we can recognize that that's what has created this mess in the first place, then why would we take on that same position? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why would you want to take on the mentality of your oppressor? Exactly. You know, um, so for me, it's been eye opening for, for the year. I think 2020 has been really cruel. 
because even with COVID nineteen, it's made sure that it made it, that last year got the credit. For the, for the, <laughs> 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 for the virus. Right. You know, it's like, right. yeah, don't put that on me. We put that right. on nineteen. You know, twenty twenty has been really cruel. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier about um, about energy. Um, as a black man, um, how do you make space for self care? I think um, this is a difficult question to answer. I don't, because at times I struggle with with what it means to be a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle with the idea that I I get on the subway, and nearly a hundred percent of the time, if I get on the empty subway train and as it starts to fill out, I'm the last person anyone will sit next to. I struggle with that because, and even if I try to um, console myself with whatever ideology or paradigm, it just happens the next time. And it makes me think, I live in a world where I've said nothing, I've done nothing, I don't, um, I'm highly educated, I'm I'm worldly traveled, I run my own business, I have never been in trouble with the police ever um, in my lifetime. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, whether it's stereotypical to say like some black guys have kids all over the place and right. have no right. kids. I, I don't fit some of these stereotypes, but yet I am still the least desirable person to be sat next to on the subway. Right. And that's a very difficult thing to, um, to contend with. So to answer your question, how do I take care of myself? I, I, I have to just say to myself that, you know, I can't fix the world. It's, it's a task way bigger than what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is try to fix as much as I can in my life. Mm-hmm. So to make sure that I'm, you know, um, prospering, to make sure that I'm, um, you know, not going down a windy road that's going to lead me down a rabbit hole um, and not getting involved with people that I know uh, that they themselves or their ideologies are bad for me, uh, to read, you know, to try to eat well, uh, to try to stop smoking or to smoke less, to exercise more. Um, and these, these are the little things, you know, um, that that one tries to do. But that for me, there isn't a whole way to take care of myself that then now eliminates that issue. And I know that's not what you were suggesting, but it's, it's just a very difficult thing. Right. Yeah. That's real. You know, we talk about, you know, this, this year in review and all that's... Um, yet to come, you know, because we still have, by the time this airs, we still have a couple more days. Um, why would you say the arts are necessary now more than ever? I don't know if I'd say more than ever, but I see where you're going. Like, I think the arts are necessary because I think the arts allow people to find themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think to be creative and to be artistic is to tap into a frequency that is so nuanced about the who you are. I think arts can do that. I think when you don't participate in arts, it's very easy for the world to tell you who you are. The moment you become a creative and and if you try to find some purity in that, then your identity starts to become much more refined. You know, I think it's through the arts that I've become who I am. First as a listener, and then as a participator. Um, and then, you know, you become a teacher and a sharer. Um, and, but I think it's all of those things, the ability to 
to have an idea, to work from a blank canvas and then create something that never before existed, but now does, but only from a figment of your imagination is so powerful. Right. You know, um, and I think that in these times, I think we are living in a world where people are very easily led. People will see something and it becomes true by virtue mm-hmm. of, I've seen it. Right. You know, I've, I've got, I've had friends my age, you know, call me up and say to me, DL, you know, Jay-Z and Kanye and Rihanna and Beyonce, they are Illuminati. And I'm like, what do you mean they're Illuminati? And it's like, yeah, they are. I mean, haven't you seen the videos on YouTube? And it's like, yo, bro, do you know that the argument you are making and the evidence that you are providing is just so poor? Mm-hmm. But yet, you know, it's enough to see something on YouTube uh, or see something on Instagram and it becomes true, Real, you know? And so I think that the participation in arts allows you to, to, to carve your own lane in some respects. There are people who still participate in arts who then do what everyone else does. Sure. But I think it does allow you to carve your own lane and to start to be build your own belief systems. That guy, funnily enough, I said to him, and this is something I commonly say when people make statements like that. I say, listen, you know, you're telling me that Jay-Z is Illuminati, but if I was to ask you when your birthday is, any answer you give me is based on what you've been told. <laughs> How do you verify? Oh, my birth certificate. No, but your birth certificate is telling you that's your date of birth. <laughs> oh, my mom and dad told me they were there, but they're telling you. How do you verify independently of what you're being told? You cannot. Hmm. So just because something tells you something, it doesn't make it true. It's just a belief system that you build. And that's fine for you to have that belief system, but then don't try and now impart that on me as the gospel truth. You know, so I think um, we live in a world where people very easily accept um, what they're being told. Um, They're very easily convinced. You know the saying, it's easier to fool someone than to convince them that they've been fooled, you know? So um, it's stuff like that, that I just think, yeah, we, that's the world we live in. And so again, I think creativity offers an alternative to you now having a level of expression that you control and that you build from, like I said, that black canvas and that you begin to mold and contort to the innate person you are. Wow. And we'll leave it there. Yeah. Brother. Wow. It's this been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, man. It, but you I know, it all, yeah, man, it always is, man. Like, always, um, it's always, all, always a great conversation with you. Um, you know, like I always walk away uh, feeling like um, I left with more than I came with. And, um, and that's a testament to the type of brother you are. So thank you, man. Appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. You. I just want to say that, you know, this year, um, 2020 actually the number is again prevalent for another reason because i'm going to release my 20th album actually by the time this is it should have been out november um and the album is going to be called 20. it's simple you know it's a landmark because i don't believe uk rap artists has ever reached that number and not that it's all about numbers but at the same time it's still an achievement yeah that's beautiful man that's beautiful congratulations that's awesome yeah so so yeah, happy Kwanzaa to you. And uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on Artistry. You know, um, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And 
Let's do this again sometime. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, look, they don't know, but we've had some practice. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate your patience. For those who, who don't know, the put you on the inside joke. He was supposed to be our first guest, but that was before we updated our system and our whole recording process. And mm-hmm. so, so shout out to DL, arguably the most patient rapper. <laughs> <laughs> on the planet while we get our stuff together while we got our lives together to, uh, to uh, properly do this so thank you again bro oh, thank you man it was a pleasure thanks for listening to Artistry where art meets industry this podcast has been brought to you by Substantial Art and Music for more information please visit www.subartmusic.com you can also follow us on social media at Subart Music We'll see you soon, but talk to you soon. Peace.